This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special return guest to the podcast. His name is Jay Warner Wallace, or I just call him Jim, but I love talking to him. We always cover a myriad of topics, and then there's always a whole bunch of stuff left over <laughs> that I didn't get to, but he is a cold case homicide detective. He's also a popular national speaker and a best-selling author and Christian apologist. So he was on episode 275 of this podcast. So if you're not familiar with Jay Warner Wallace and any of his work, I would suggest that you go back to episode 275 of the show because we get into his his story, his testimony, like how did he go from this hardened atheist, you know, homicide detective to becoming a Christian apologist? It's a very interesting story. And the thing about it, that's really cool. And, and you know, you can just go back. I, I was about to rehash some of that stuff, but we just won't go there. But he's become a best-selling author of a lot of different books. So you may have heard of God's crime scene, forensic faith, but today really the scaffolding of our conversation was his newly released, as in it is out right now, 10th anniversary expanded and updated edition of Cold Case Christianity. So this book is been out for you know a decade and I just hadn't had a chance to read it yet so I was very excited about this interview so that I could dig into that book and dig into a lot of the content so for days for today's discussion we talked about the difference between believing that something is going to work for you versus believing in something and that it's going to work for you and the importance there. We talk about how presuppositions and biases affect how we investigate worldviews and philosophies. We go into two very common objections about the resurrection of Jesus and kind of how you should answer those things, how we should not be scared of evidential faith. I know a lot of Christians are like, well, you know, that's evidence-based faith. And if it, that means it's not faith at all, if you need the evidence. And so we really dig into that. So that's really, really good content for Christian listeners to the show. Also, we talk about the differences, but also the importance of using not only direct evidence, but indirect evidence, because a lot of things can't be proven with direct evidence, but they can be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt with indirect evidence. So we break that, that down a lot. We get into the infallibility or inerrancy of the, of the Bible and the different gospel accounts, how eyewitness testimony is seen by many to be completely unreliable, but we really base a lot of our Christian faith on eyewitness testimonies from the first century. We talk about how a lot of people think that, you know, the story of Jesus is that, you know, Jesus didn't actually exist, but he's just an amalgamation of a bunch of older messianic myths that are kind of Jewish and kind of pagan, and they just kind of got mushed together. We dig into that, but at the end, we get into a great discussion about what it means to be an abbreviated Christian, because there are a lot of Christians out there that think that the way they're doing it is fine. They don't ever have to answer for their faith, so they're kind of ignoring Paul whenever they say that, but they don't have to answer for their faith. They don't have to argue for it, and it's never going to come up anyway. So we dig into all that, guys. I really, really enjoyed my time with him. It's always fun with Jim on the show, so without further ado, let's get into it. Jim, welcome back to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. I'm so glad to be with you. One of my favorite I'm places to be. Hey, this is this is the best place for everyone to be because that's where all the fun yeah. happens. And we got a lot of uh, stuff to cover today, not a whole lot of okay. time. But you threw a little thing in at me right before I hit the record button. And you said, hey, Kyle, my next book, because I, I wanted to talk to you about a current book, which we'll get to in yeah. a second. But you're like, yeah. hey, the next book, the next book's the one you're really, really going to like. So tell me a little bit more about that book. Well, we just finished the first manuscript, so it's in editing right now. So that takes a couple. It's not out till next uh, May, I think May fifth of twenty twenty four, and it's a book called "The Truth and True Crime." And what we do is we kind of make a case in that book. Um, you know, all my case, all my books for the most part are are affirming of a Christian worldview, and we come at it from different angles. Uh, this next book is fifteen uh, rules for life that you learn from investigating death. So it's 15 stories of uh, murder investigations. And from each story, there's one principle for living 
that I think emerges. Now, it just so happens that those principles are very ancient and they affirm a biblical view of anthropology. So so it's a kind of a case for Christianity from anthropology, but it's really mm. a kind of a, a guideline of how to avoid stupid <laughs> if you can do it, right? And so right. It, it talks about a lot of the stuff that you've actually talked about on your podcast. We kind of parse it out. And it also provides all the kind of current studies because it turns out that that when we study human nature, contemporarily, like now with even a secular study of human nature is going to reveal something that's true about our biology. Mm. And it's so much of what we, how we behave as men is based not on uh, what culture says we are. It's based on our, our genetics. It's based on biochemistry. It's based on things we're not going to be able to change. You can't just think yourself out of these, these, uh, these features of our nature. Um, and so those things are ancient because they are grounded in biology, which if you're a Christian, you would say is, is so because um, a creator has created us in a certain way. And that hasn't changed. And so, so what you'll discover is that all of the current studies that study well-being in humans end up affirming principles that are ancient because it's grounded in your biology and you will find them on the pages of scripture. So that's kind of what this next book is all about, but it does take an angle. It's all through true crime stories that we talk about these uh, aspects of human nature. Well, Jim, I don't know if you've heard the breaking news, but I've been reliably informed that biology is not real, that if I no. say that I'm a woman, that if I say that I'm an animal, if I say that I'm a ficus, uh, you know, that's what I am. So I don't, right. this book is already offending me. How dare you? I know. Well, if you're genetically predisposed toward any <laughs> illness, we ought not find that out because you, I guess apparently we can now change our genetic predispositions based on just our personal beliefs. And that's what's so interesting about this, right? It's like there's a sense in which we hear all the time that whatever your old notions were, uh, they need to be removed because we're not in the old times anymore. We're in a, a more elevated, evolved state. But the reality of it is that so much of what we do, we're finding now, is grounded in genetic code. And because yeah. that doesn't, that's really is about biology. I mean, even more than we think, even stuff dealing with mental well-being is often grounded in genetic predispositions. So I think that's worth us exploring. And as, as, as if you're in a creationist, that should be, that should be, uh, you should be very comfortable with that because uh, it really demonstrates that you have the fingerprints of the creator are in the code. So you can really kind of learn something about the creator just from the creator's code. Well, Jim, you mentioned the code. It reminded me of when Jim Collins, mm -hmm. Christian scientist, some he's got a little bit of a, a sketchy uh, job or whatever he was doing. We won't talk about that. But how he helped Christopher Hitchens with his cancer later in his life based on looking at his genetic code and his predispositions inside his DNA. And so it is interesting, people that are from that atheist, materialistic, humanist worldview, they will depend on things like their own genetic coding to to have those types of opinions, which is which is very interesting. But I did right. want to take a little sidebar, but we're going to come back in because, guys, if you're listening to this on time, the 10-year anniversary of Cold Case Christianity is now out and available. It is updated and expanded, but we are going to skip the generic. So why did you write the book? What's it about? Blah, blah, blah. Guys can read. I talked about it in the introduction. I'll talk about it again after we're done. So if it's okay with you, I want to dig right into the content of the book. You good with that? Yep, let's do it. Okay. So one of the first things that you bring up that's very important is in the preface where you bring up the concept of belief that versus belief in. So talk us through that real quick. 
Yeah, there's a difference, right? Belief that is often just a kind of intellectual assent. So uh, you can believe, and I use this illustration in the book, you can believe that your bulletproof vest stops bullets. And I had a case where a guy was involved in an officer-involved shooting, and I never forgot it and because it was so... Um, as he was walking us through, what happens in an officer-involved shooting is that, uh, let's say you're that you're in a critical incident, and you have to discharge your weapon, and then afterwards, that's going to be investigated. As a matter of fact, sadly for officers, most of the time the officer will be treated like a suspect in that investigation. Mm-hmm. Like, why did you shoot your weapon? Did you have justification to do that? Um, especially, you can imagine today in today's climate. So, if you're on the homicide team in some smaller agencies, mine's the fourth largest or third largest agency in Los Angeles County, but it's not nearly as big as LAPD. So we work our own officer involved shootings. We send our homicide team out and we separate everybody and we go through the the shoot scene and then we ask questions. And I get to one call, this guy's been involved in an officer involved shooting. And he tells me that, you know, he pulled over this drunk driver, a guy gets out of the car and decides that he wants to kill the officer and pulls a gun on the officer before the officer could do much of anything. He's like caught empty handed. And -hmm. in order to survive it, he said, you know what? He had seen uh, the bulletproof vest that he was wearing stop bullets on the range. So he simply trusted the vest. He simply said, you know what? I just tensed up my stomach muscles and I started to pull my gun out. I figure if I take a round in the chest, I could probably survive it because I have this vest on. In that moment, he went from belief that to belief in. He might have believed prior to that, that the vest could stop bullets. And you might not even see that this this happened. You just were told by people, you know, this vest can stop bullets. And you might even fully believe that. But in that moment, he switched from belief that to belief in. And, and a lot of that is about trusting in something that you know to be evidentially true. And by the way, if you know in advance that this is evidentially true, because you've seen it stop bullets, well, you're far more likely to trust it in a gunfight. And that's why it's important for yep. us to know in advance, is Christianity true? Can we make an evidential case for this? Because then when you're in the gunfight, which right now in culture is probably going to happen on Twitter or on some social media platform in the comment section of your YouTube channel, it's mm-hmm. going to happen somewhere. And you're going to have to be ready. You know this because I'm sure you are occasionally get some pushback on social media from the content of your shows. And when that happens, you better know what the evidential truth is in a way that you're so confident in that you can stand in the gunfight. And that's when you'll be moving from believe that, you know, like the, the scripture even says that the dev, the demons believe that Jesus is who he said he was, but they don't trust in him. And so that's the difference between belief that and belief in. And I think that hopefully books like Cold Case will help people make that transition. So you mentioned having an, an evidentiary faith. And so you talk about this later in the book, but I want to go mm-hmm. ahead and transition and keep this conversation going because there's a quote that I think is very, very important. And this is mainly for the Christians in the audience. So mm-hmm. everybody listen up. As I speak around the country, I often encounter devoted, committed Christians who are hesitant to embrace an evidential faith. In many Christian circles, faith that requires evidential support is seen as weak and inferior. For many, blind faith a faith that simply trusts without question is the truest, most sincere, and most valuable form of faith we can offer. So I remember here recently, Jim, there was a guy that kind of blasted me via, you know, our, our email line through our website. Blasted maybe isn't uh, the right word, but I'll, I'll just use it. I was appealing to logic in a recent episode of The Forging Table where we're talking about how people believe things and whatever. 
and people get mad at, you know, archaeological evidence or historical evidence. And they're like, look, this isn't faith based. Like this is meant to confuse us. All we need is real faith. And then you get those like died in the wool cage stage Calvinists that are like, look, you don't learn faith. You receive faith. It's a gift. You bring nothing to the table. You unbelievable loser. And so for, for me, I, I have a lot of problems with that because of the entire apologetics endeavor that, I mean, even you even quote C.S. Lewis in, in the preface where you're talking about, you know, Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, is of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, C.S. Lewis is not Jesus or, or Paul or something like that, but that like that that's real in our bones. Like, I feel like that's yeah. true. Why do you feel like so many Christians have problems there? Well, I think it is because, well, a couple of things. I think that theologically we can run down rabbit trails in theology, but here's what I would, I would say, just make it simple. And this is what I try to do in the book, right? I try to take the simplest, most straightforward, like any idiot like me can grab onto this. Why? Because mm -hmm. typically I'm working with juries and I don't know the the range of, of, of ability on a, any given jury. I might have some idea, but I have to kind of shoot for that simplest, you know, throw that ball over the middle of the plate at 40 right. miles an hour, no curve on it, just no spin, just throw it so you can, you can hammer it. So I try to do the same thing with this, these kinds of books. And, and what I often will say is, look, that's what Mormons do. Mormons will tell you that I don't need to investigate this. I right. just know. And, and I'm a Mormon because what, someone, God flipped a switch? You don't believe Mormonism is true. And if you don't believe Mormon, it's probably because you've investigated the claims of Mormonism. Sure. Now, so if, if whatever approach you're taking towards your Christian faith is the same as that as that Mormons take toward their faith, and you don't believe Mormonism is true, then maybe you shouldn't be taking that approach. It turns out the Mormon could not do what we do. And by the way, I wrote a whole book about this called Forensic Faith. The, for, the, the Christian faith is forensic in the sense that Jesus commended evidence and used evidence all the time. The two forms of evidence used in every jury trial are direct and indirect evidence, and Jesus used both of them. He would even say, if you don't believe what I'm telling you, at least believe on the evidence of the miracles I've worked in front of you. And then he spends 40 days with the disciples after the resurrection. Like, that wouldn't be enough? Yep, 40 more days, giving them many convincing proofs. And then he commissions them, because they are the direct evidence, they're the eyewitnesses, that's how they got commissioned, that Nobody, by the way, became an apostle who wasn't a, 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 an eyewitness of Jesus because Jesus has a high concern for direct evidence. I mean, there's hardly any way to cut the, the cake here in which you don't expose an evidential bend to Christianity. So I think it's fair for us to take the same approach. Remember, the word hope in the New Testament is not like the word hope in the English dictionary. I've been saying this a lot lately because you have to make it clear. Hope in the English dictionary is kind of like, yeah, I hope the Lakers win next weekend. Do you think they'll win? I hope they'll win. No, that's different than the kind of hope in the New Testament. The hope in the New Testament is certainty and confidence on the basis of what you can know. So when you hear someone say hope in the New Testament, and why? Wow. That that sounds like just like wishful thinking. No, no, no. That's not how it was intended. That Greek word does not mean wishful thinking. We have to kind of take a view of hope that is equally certain. And that certainty comes from knowing something about what the claim is. By the way, you might think you know that the Lakers are going to win next weekend or the next game they play because you have done your homework and you understand the lineup and the matchup in that game and what the record is back and forth and why the home team is favored, whatever it may be. 
we are usually really good at making a case for a lot of stupid things that don't matter. My wife says, I watch, listen to all these sports shows, right? Tonight at eight o'clock, we're drafting our fantasy football teams. And I'm thinking, okay, look, we, 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 we are so focused on the minutia of stuff that is fleeting and is nothing more than a pastime. Remember, pastimes are designed to pass time. Yet, when it comes to our theological views or our worldview in general, even if we're not Christians, we don't spend a lot of time investigating or being able to uh, readying ourselves to defend those views. So I think we just need to shift as men. By the way, our kids are watching. If we're doing a better job as men of, of, of raising a, a fan in our home, of our mm-hmm. local sporting team, than we are in raising a disciple of Christ, then stop calling yourself a Christian. Because if you so, want me to know what you really worship, just give me your thought life. Let me, so a few things this, right off the top you know, here. Yeah. So number one, nobody wants the Lakers to win their next game, Jim. Like nobody. So just so I'll throw that out there. No one cares about the Lakers anymore. No, I'm with number you. Number two, I'm, yes. I'm I'm all for the chaos method for uh, fantasy drafts. You should take a quarterback in the first round just to screw with everybody uh, in your know. fantasy draft. Just beat yeah, that I'm person. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it tonight. I'm sorry. It's <laughs> going to be but, a running back and two wide receivers. I'm sorry. Okay, That's it. Right. Those are the first three rounds. Maybe the second round. Okay, we can talk about I, it yeah, off, off yeah. air. But the other thing is every year at the beginning of the year, I do an episode called how to avoid being a crappy man in, you know, whatever year it is, 2022, 2023. And one thing that will be on there until the show no longer exists is don't let sports ruin your night. And it's because I have ruined so many nights for so many people, not the least of which my spouse, because I lived and died with every single pitch that left the hands in a St. Louis Cardinals game. Okay, fine. stop, stop, the, stop, stop. Wait a minute. Ahead. You just criticized the Lakers, okay? Yeah. And then you mentioned something that's not even a sport. That's a, that's a game, okay? We're talking about sports here. Don't even bring up baseball. You're saying baseball's not a sport. Okay, right. Here's my next question, Jim. How can I be long 50, have you been Can I be 50 pounds overweight and not even be able to run 100 yards and play the game? No. Yes, then I'm not. It's not a sport. It's a game. It is way harder to if hit you a look, spherical ball with a circular bat squarely. It's even hard to say that, Jim. You're telling well, me that's not okay. A sport. Hold on. So then, are carpenters uh, athletes too? Then because they can hit the head of a nail. I'm sorry. That is that's that's just not enough. Okay. If if, if you look like somebody who could play checkers. Then you probably aren't an athlete. So we'll put it this way, Jim. I just need you to go into your wallet right now, pull out your Communist Party membership card, and then just let everybody else know that you no, don't even just, care about I'm this just, country. No, I'm just messing with you. Honestly, no. to be honest, I, I wish I could be uh, as passionate and as interested in baseball as I am in other uh, leagues, just uh, because I feel like there's a whole, you know, there's a bunch of time there. And Susie's yeah. really good at, at pointing this out where I'm watching in between seasons where, where I'm watching what Susie calls sports gossip. <laughs> you know, it's like nothing's yeah. really happening and we're just, we're just speculating on stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I would, I do wish I, someday I'm going to have to sit down. It's, I just think the problem with baseball is it's, it takes um, a very, you have to be smart because it's a lot of, of details and you have to know the players really well to be interested, I think. 
And I think I think it's not a lazy man's sport. And I'm pretty lazy when it comes to my pastimes. So hey, I will tell you, it. most part of the reason why people like football is because you don't have to know anything. It's just a That's short right. attention span. This guy in this color no, jersey you're, smashes you're into right. this guy. But yep. for me, having played baseball, I noticed like, oh, the shortstop moved over like two yes. feet before yes. this pitch because he knew where the location was going to be. But but the okay, whole see, but see, is, if you're stupid like me, I can't figure. I don't understand that. I can't figure that out. I'm like, Jim, what is that's going on why here? I'm here. I'm here to help you, Jim. I will help you through this. I will make you a good American yet. Okay. Okay, good. But the number of guys that, to your point that you were making earlier, they live and die with their favorite college football team, their favorite, yeah. favorite major league baseball team, their favorite fighter. And their kids see that. And when I see these yep. videos of like these four-year-olds freaking out at a, at a soccer match or, or something like that, I'm like, everyone thinks it's cute and funny. And I'm like, that is terrifying. That yeah, is horrible sad. because you're, you're, you're worshiping at the altar of what's going on there. But to even go back to what we were talking about before we went way yeah, off into ahead. left field, yep, all yep, pun no intended, was yep. presuppositions. And you talk about that in the book. There are people that come into the discussion on Christianity presupposing that miracles can't happen, presupposing yep. their ideology. So, for instance, I already brought up Calvinism. I've been digging a lot in that philosophy lately. If you think that Calvinism is true, you will read scripture through that lens and everything that sounds Calvinistic in nature, you'll be like, oh, there's another example. And so it's a presupposition and you're, you're proof texting so that you will, you know, seem a little bit a little smarter, I guess you would say. But the thing I really want to dig into Jim is talking about, you brought up direct evidence and indirect evidence. Cause I think that's very important to this discussion. And so I'll actually read a quote from your book. That's that talks about this. Most people tend to think direct evidence is required to be certain about what happened. But what about cases that have no direct evidence connecting mm -hmm. the suspect to the crime scene? Can truth be proven beyond a reasonable doubt when all the evidence we have is circumstantial? Absolutely. And so I'm reminded, Jim, of you know Joe Rogan, the biggest podcaster on the planet. Whenever mm -hmm. he brings up the Bible or faith, he just kind of waves his hand over it and says, "Oh, you know, it was just handed down via these these cultures that didn't write anything down. It was written down hundreds of years later. It was translated so many times. We don't even have the originals. There's no direct evidence that Jesus was a real person that mm -hmm. lived and walked the earth, which is one of the most historically ignorant things a human being could say out loud." But it's because they look at the Christian faith, Jim, as having no direct evidence. So talk to me about the, the importance of direct, but also indirect evidence. Yeah, I think what they really don't understand is just the, the categories at all. They, they wouldn't even know, like they wouldn't even say there's no direct evidence. They say there's no hard evidence. I hear that all the time. There's no hard right. evidence, as if this is a category. Well, hard's not a category. That's not like the, the judge is going to instruct jurors the difference between hard and soft evidence. It's not categories. There's just direct and indirect. And direct evidence can be as much as a video, like your videos also could be direct evidence because anytime an eye either the human eye or the lens of the camera of the lens can record something and then replay it either by telling you verbally or by just replaying the video that's direct evidence uh, but but everything else dna fingerprints blood spatter um, gunshot residue material comparisons anything you do at the crime scene this collection of evidence that stuff's all indirect that's also known as circumstantial it's just the way the define the evidence is defined so that's just the definition and all 50 states that's how it works and you make cases with a combination of direct and indirect evidence and on cold cases unfortunately because they're lame to begin with that's why they're cold they typically don't have eyewitnesses 
So I have to make the case a different way. And that case is going to be made through some form of indirect evidence. And because people are, like are kind of wondering, like, how do I, how do you do that? Well, they're called cumulative circumstantial cases. What we do is we build, if you have a hundred things that it's death by a thousand paper cuts, if you have a hundred things that point to a guy, that's pretty good reasoning, pretty good inference that he's our guy. And you might think, well, any, if only had one of those things, I wouldn't have a case. Yeah, you're right. It's the cumulative nature of those things. Cause any one of us could bump into some piece of evidence that might point to us by, by accident. But this is now outside the realm of accident. Cause you just basically are playing the odds. And this is, by the way, I do this all the time. I've never lost a case. And many of these cases, even if we, pr we pr prosecuted them with nothing but circumstantial evidence. And people are like, I'm not even sure. Could that be possible? These guys have confessed afterwards. So I know I have the right guy. I knew it all along. And we can we convicted the guy on the basis of circumstantial evidence. So I think this is important for us, right? Because uh, someone like Joe Rogan, who I think is, I actually enjoy listening to Joe Rogan a lot. I don't Me too. have a problem with Joe Rogan. I think, by the way, do I agree with everything that everyone I talk to believes? Of, of course, course not. not. Nobody does. I, like, as Frank Turk often says, I don't even agree with myself half the time. So, <laughs> so I'm over that. Okay. But I do think that, that he's thoughtful. Now what keeps us, what keeps thoughtful people from reaching accurate inferences is often something other than the evidence. It's something that you bring into the case with you. It's some bias, it's some desire, something you want to be true, whether it's true or not, or it's something from your background that causes you to distrust a certain source of information, whatever it may be. But it has less to do with the facts that I present to you, which is why jury selection is so critical. If we don't do anything. I tell people all the time, you win jury uh, trials at jury selection. It's not in the opening, not in the closing, not in the evidence show. It's at jury selection. You put the wrong people on your jury. Good luck with that. And so a lot of it for us when we're talking to people is to recognize quickly, okay, if Joe's like not open to even listening. Now, he just had Stephen C. Meyer on his show, uh, who is right. a, a thinker on the Christian side uh, in the sciences. And I mean, it got to be pretty high level talk. Uh, I've listened to it and a lot of people would probably say, eh, I'm not interested pretty quickly because it's such a high level, right? It's not like a, a kind of relational, but, but I thought that, you know, he, he, it was, he was fair. He was fair to Stephen C. Meyer. I thought he was fair on the show. And I think in the end, it's about trying to reach people where they are. I think part of it is that when people hear that your narrative includes a miracle, they're already out. I right. remember once watching Hitchens debate uh, William Lane Craig. And before the thing really even got started, he simply said, but before we go any further, and I looked over at, at, at William Lane Craig, and he said, so do you believe that the Jesus was born of a virgin? And William Lane Craig said, yes. And he looked at the audience, and he said, I rest my case. In other words, the idea is so preposterous on its face to these folks hmm. that there's no point in going any further. That is such a bias against anything extra natural. Anything that can't be explained with space-time, matter, physics, and chemistry. And there's so much about the universe that cannot be explained with space-time, matter, physics, and chemistry. And they're willing to embrace those ideas. How do we get a universe? How do we get space-time matter without a cause that is spatial, temporal, or material? Because clearly there's some cause outside of space-time and matter that causes space-time and matter according to their science. So how do we get there? They're just willing to embrace we don't know yet. And I, this is why I wrote a book called God's Crime Scene, where we just did eight features of the universe. And on every one of those, modern scientists are going to say, we don't know yet. And they're comfortable with that. Sure. Because the alternative, well, it seems like a divine being would solve all eight 
pieces of the all eight clues. Nope, 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 nope. That's a, that's a bias against the supernatural. So I think in the end, that's what's happening in the New Testament documents. And people like Joe Rogan are looking at that and saying, ah, you know, I just, on its face, it's ludicrous. There's no point in even discussing it. It's ludicrous. It must be late in history. It must be these things because there's no way it could be true because to me, on its face, it's ludicrous. And that's why the right. first chapter I wrote of cold cases, don't be a know-it-all. It all comes down to our biases. What we think we want to be true often overrides what we find to be true. And right. so I think in the end, we have to just have an open hand. That's all I would say. And here's what I would say, Kyle, if they aren't having an open hand, walk away. There is no point right. in it. And yeah, it turns I, I out tell that, people, go ahead. No, and it turns out you're right. Like you were talking about Calvinism, for example. I hold that with a very open hand. I see the case on both sides. I'm not going to land that. I just, I can't, I can't, now what that does is irritate people on both sides. Because I'll yeah. post things from both sides. I and mean, every time I do, somebody will say, Oh, look at this ridiculous Calvinist stuff. Oh, look at this ridiculous, you know, the Calvinists hate when I post anything that involves free agency. So, I mean, like, you know what? Get over yourselves. All right. There's some things about the nature of a divine, infinite being that I don't expect to understand perfectly. They're on my list of the first five things I'm going to ask God when I get in his presence. Tell me about Genesis 1, please. And then two, can you solve the riddle between your sovereignty and our free agency? Because that's where we seem to divide. Those are my first two questions. So, but I'm going to wait until I get there. To ask those questions. Do I believe there's a God of the universe though? That to me is un, un, there's just no way to get around that. Hey guys, real quick. If you were anything like me, you don't like paying for stuff that you think you're capable of doing yourself. So a lot of people end up doing that with their IT at their businesses. And the problem is, is if you're not an expert at it, you can leave yourself open to attacks. So I literally just heard a story about a company that DIY'd their servers and data security and that kind of stuff, and they got hacked. And they had all of their important business files stolen. And they ended up having to pay the hackers $15,000 in ransom money to get their files back. Like seriously, like 15 grand just to be able to run their business. So I don't want this to happen to the business owners in my audience. And that's why I want to introduce you to my friends at LMS Tech. So LMS Tech is an IT security company that can help your business with all kinds of IT headaches. So that's network installation, configuration, security, and monitoring, server setup and maintenance cloud data storage, email management and security, antivirus management, industry specific compliance. So this is like HIPAA, financial services, insurance, credit cards, that kind of thing. And even custom software implementation like CRM and HR tools. So while you focus on making your business successful, let LMS Tech secure IT. I trust LMS Tech with the security for my business here at Undaunted Life, so I think you should give them a shot as well. So, to receive your free IT and data security assessment, visit this website, getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech. Don't risk your data ending up in the wrong hands. Invite the experts in to protect your business. Again, the site is getsecurity.tech. That's getsecurity.tech to get your free assessment. The links to all of that will be in the show notes as well. So that tension, that tension between free agency and sovereignty, uh, people's views on old earth versus young earth, it's when those opinions become salvific in nature is That's where right. it becomes, because like I get asked all the time about having a young earth person on my show to talk about that and have a debate with young earth and old earth. And I'm like, guys, I would rather have a conversation about vanilla ice cream. Like I just don't yes. care enough about the subject because I don't think it's really knowable. And so I'm like, I would rather not, you know, spin my tires for hours and hours prepping an interview and then to, to go through 
through with it because you're right. Our, our biases and our presuppositions are so strong, but it's these people that have this air about them that they know. Christopher Hitchens, I thought, was an absolute goober because he was just, he was so sure of himself and his accent, he thought, may added 20 points to his IQ. But the thing is, is like, I constantly find areas of the world that I'm so ignorant about. This year, I had two vocal cord surgeries. So don't you think I've learned a lot about vocal cords and vocal folds and the musculature that helps you phonate and breathing and all that. This was a world I had no idea even existed until I had to know that it existed. But I, I do want to go to one more thing before we move off the, the kind of the Joe Rogan-esque responses yes. to Christianity. A lot of people are very, very critical about eyewitness testimony because, you know, they'll say things like, look, you know, and and you know this from your investigative past, man, you can't even trust eyewitness testimony and you'll have two people that were present side by side that saw different things. And then that'll actually bleed over into, can the Bible be inerrant when there are these contradictions in these gospel accounts by eyewitnesses? This person saw one angel, this person saw multiple angels, this person said this, this person said that. So talk to me a little bit about eyewitness testimony because my, you know, uh, I feel like I have a pretty good memory, but if you ask me about something that happened a couple of weeks ago, I might be a little fuzzy, much less decades ago. Man, you raise a lot of really important issues there. And we try to cover all these in the book in different ways. But one of the things we would say is that, yes, I don't trust eyewitnesses. So when people say eyewitness testimony is too unreliable, well, no kidding. I don't trust eyewitnesses. I test eyewitnesses. Now, if we, and this is true in all jury trials. The, 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 but, but, but what judges will say, though, is that you're to test them neutrally. Like you're not to come in and, and, and start with a position of distrust. But we do offer uh, 13 in California, 13 questions that our, our jurors are allowed to consider. And those 13 questions fall into far, four categories. And that's true in every state of the union. We are encourage jurors to test eyewitnesses in the critical areas of eyewitness reliability. But if they pass, you are instructed by the judge to trust them. Yeah, you can't just say, well, I just don't like the way he sounds. He's got a scowl on his face. Okay, that doesn't count. Oh, he reminds me of my Uncle Eddie, who I hate. Uh, that doesn't count. Oh, he's a different race than I am. That doesn't count. If he passed the test in those four areas, you are to embrace his test. You have no reason not to. So I simply put, put, uh, applied that test to the gospel authors. Now, I wasn't trying to be clever or cute. I was trying to figure out, is this true? <laughs> That's it. Yep. You know, and it's, it's like, this is how we test eyewitnesses. And I'm like anybody else. I don't trust eyewitnesses. You shouldn't either if you don't trust, if you don't test them. But that's what the whole book is about. It's about testing the eyewitnesses. Now, uh, you're right. People see the same thing different ways. And that's very common. Uh, the only thing we ever ask uh, our dispatcher to do when we're being dispatched to a homicide in the middle of the night, and I got to get a suit on and get my gig bag, and I want to be an hour and 15 minutes behind everybody else because I live pretty far away, I ask them to separate the eyewitnesses until I get there. I don't want the eyewitnesses talking to each other because they'll line up their story. And I know mm-hmm. in the end, even though it just happened two hours ago, and none of these eyewitnesses is going to be trying to lie to me, they're going to give me what it look like contradictory accounts. Now they're not, uh, I'm going to be able to figure out, well, okay, that's how this puzzles together. Oh, that's why they saw that this way. Oh, that's where your biases are, or that's why you're interested in, oh, you like that brand of shirt or you, oh, you understand guns. Okay. Okay. I'm going to be able to piece this together based on, on the, the nature of each eyewitness. And that is what every case presents. And so when I first read the, the gospel authors and I had a chance to see what they were saying and the variations between the accounts, it provoked me 
to uh, investigate them because I thought if there were just one account, I'm like, really, why would you trust that one account? Oh no, but there's, there's more than one account and they don't quite line up perfectly. Ah, oh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. If they all lined up perfectly and you even see where, where somebody has, has borrowed from information. Like if Luke is interviewing Mark, unsurprisingly, Mark also has that account in his gospel. Mm -hmm. That doesn't bother me either because again, Luke says to us that he is interviewing the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So I would expect some of this, but my point is, um, so I, I saw in the uh, gospel variations exactly what I would expect to see from uh, reliable eyewitness accounts. Now, you raised another issue. You said, well, what do we do about inerrancy? Like, how does that work? Like, why would God? Okay. Well, what is your definition of inerrancy? That's really the question. And I think we we have a very, it, it, it depends. And not everyone you talk to has holds the same definition. I always say it this way. If God, what God wanted to do was to divinely uh, allow eyewitnesses to observe an event and still maintain their autonomy as an eyewitness. In other words, you'll see that even, even the scriptures clearly at least have the, the, the character, the nature of the observer. Like you didn't, God did not like say, okay, stop. You're saying it wrong. Let me say it the God way. He allowed Luke to talk like Luke with his interests his vocabulary. He allowed John to talk like John and Matthew to talk like Matthew and Mark to talk like he had his hands off of that. And he allowed them to, to talk about it in a way that we then could later test to see if it's true, if that was the goal. Because I don't know that you would have more confidence in the scripture if there was just one account. And I don't mm. know that you'd have more confidence in the scripture if there were four word for word identical accounts. I think you'd probably have less confidence in the scripture. So if God's goal was to inspire four real eyewitnesses or real people who are talking to eyewitnesses, to write an account that we could then test as eyewitness testimony later, he did a perfect job because we actually have those kinds of accounts. And now I don't, I don't think there are contradictions. That's why I, I know when people are, are making an observation, I'm going to use all the witnesses in trial. Even if at first you're like going, well, was he wearing a t-shirt or not? Because I'm going to be able to explain to the jury why this observation looked this way to him and why this observation looked that way to her. I'm going to have to do that in the jury trial. I get that. But this is the nature of eyewitnesses. They'll say things that leave you scratching your head. And by the way, defense attorneys love this. They play this angle. And we're all ready for it, okay? So even when I've got that kind of variation, we still don't lose the case because we recognize and people recognize. And as a matter, matter of fact, there is a jury instruction in which judges tell juries that there will be variations between witnesses. And that's real. That's, that's a, that's what you should expect. So it's mm -hmm. in the jury instructions and it ought to be in our mind as we're reading the gospels. When I think what you bring up there, and by the way, guys, you go into such detail in the books on all these subjects matters. So all the different books and specifically uh, cold case Christianity, but it's when people are doing surface level analysis or univariate analysis, these arguments sound smart, but when you start digging into the details and going more than one layer deep, it's like, oh, it tends to fall apart fairly quickly. It's kind of like paper mache when they think their arguments are made out of iron. And so um, what I want to do now, I want to actually shift because you did a good job of this in in the latest book or in the, the re-release of, of the book. Um, you go into a couple – well, you go into several, but I want to bring up a couple of common objections to the resurrection of Jesus, sure. because ultimately, guys, the hinge point of our entire conversation, everything I do for a living, everything Jim does for a living is the resurrection of Jesus, because if that didn't happen, we're having a bunch of different conversations right now. We'd still be talking about fantasy football and baseball right now. That's right. That's basically That's right. where we would be. 
the very first thing that you bring up in the book that I want to talk about is this objection that the disciples, they just lied about the resurrection. And before you get into that, there's a lot of great quotes, but there's a little bit later in the book. This is probably my favorite one-liner from the book. It's, while it's reasonable to believe you and I might die for what we mistakenly thought was true, it's unreasonable to believe these men died for what they definitely knew to be untrue. So talk to me a little bit about the objection that, oh, the disciples made this up because they wanted chicks and money and prestige and all these different things, and it just didn't work out for them. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the question becomes, this is one of the tests we offer in jury trials. Do they, are they motivated? Do they possess some motivation? Like you, you, you find out, you know, uh, this guy tells you all this stuff. He's called in by the defense. He says, no, that my, my, you know, that guy was never even there. I was there and he wasn't there. Then you come to find out that he is the suspect's cousin and you're going, oh, okay, well, he is just trying to protect his cousin. Uh, that kind of motive will help a jury to decide, is it possible he's lying? Like, would it benefit him in some way if he would just lie? Because if it, if it might, then you might at least consider that and judging his veracity, right? So the question is, is something motivating these disciples to lie? Well, there's only three motivations for any lie. They're the same three motivations for any misbehavior, including murder. And that is the uh, sex, money, and the pursuit of power. And the pursuit mm -hmm. of power is the, the big catch-all that is responsible for like 70% of stupid is the pursuit of power, mm -hmm. believe it or not. Yep. It's that, hey, I, I, you disrespected me. You know, I, I, I'm jealous. I'm upset about how you treated me. I, you look bigger than me. Or you look like you're more important than me. You're a different color than me. I mean, all these things are pursuit of power things. And so the question then becomes, well, what is it that's causing these people to lie? Now, what I think is true is that there are lots of people who will lie uh, just not talking about groups now, just individuals. There are lots of individuals who will, uh, will, will be, can be mistaken about what they think is true. And they would be willing to die for what they think occurred, right? And there's, there's lots of people who die for what they do not know is a lie. And this is true of people who fly planes into buildings. They don't really know, you know, several centuries later, whether or not the initial claims are true. So if you and I said, hey, I'm so committed to my Christian faith that I would be willing to die for it. It has zero evidential value because you and I weren't there. Mm -hmm. But when somebody who is there, who was there, says, you know what, uh, I'm willing to die for what they would know if it was a lie. That's very different. That has high evidential value because they would be the one person who would actually know if what they're saying is true. We don't. We are trusting by investigating, by doing all we can to corroborate this. We develop a level of, of, of confidence that this is true. But that person would know with certainty because he was there. Now, that's just an individual. But when you see large groups are willing to, in total, die for the claims, this becomes even more dramatic. And that's why I think that this, this, now again, we could, now I see skeptics will argue, well, we don't know they really died that way. Okay. Uh, Sean McDowell's done some great work on this um, in a book that he wrote. It's on, you can get it on at booksellers. I think it's called The Death of the Apostles or The Death of the Disciples. I forget what it's called, but it's really a good book that just looks at how reliable are the death stories of the disciples in the first century. And I'll tell you that um, there, there is no counter stories. It's not like there's some set of non-Christian ancient documents that says, yeah, Peter never really died. Paul never really died that way. He, he lived in old age. You know, there's no counter stories. And that's why I think that we have good reason to believe that people suffered for their claims. This is even happening in scripture. Paul tells you that long list of ways he was beaten and shipwrecked and, and tortured and all that for his claim and imprisoned for his claims. This was happening pretty early. 
in an empire that if you didn't bend your knee to the Roman gods, the only group really that had the exception on that was were the Jews. But this right. was not seen as Jewish. This was seen as another group that now was not bending its knee to Roman gods. So I think that the idea that Christians were persecuted early and would have known if it's true is a powerful notion. Again, it's not the only thing I would consider. But when you build circumstantial cumulative cases, it's one of those pieces that's part of the overarching puzzle I'm looking at. It's one of the four areas of eyewitness reliability. Do they possess a bias or a motive to lie? I just can't find it. If there is one, what would it be? That's the right. question. Well, it's like, what is the motivation? And, and by the way, that, that Sean McDowell book is The Fate of the Apostles. The fate of and the they, Apostles, they, yeah. Yeah, they mm -hmm. go into a lot of detail there. But I don't know of a single case of not just a prominent Christian, but any Christian in the first or second or third century that recanted on their way to the gallows or right. on their way to being <clears throat> burned alive so that Nero could have parties or being thrown to beasts. We don't, we get reports from secular authorities from, you know, Celsus and, and Josephus and other places where it's like, Hey, these followers of this, like, Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter th that they think it was resurrected. Like these guys are, they're like singing hymns and praying. They, I don't think they would have called them hymns or singing songs and praying on the way to being murdered in these horrific ways. And again, if you know these things not to be true, none of that holds up. Like right. nobody gets, you know, crucified upside down. No one gets beheaded. No one gets stoned to death. They go, wait, 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 just kidding, guys. Just kidding, guys. Let right. me explain. Let me explain. But another one, we'll only go over uh, uh, the second one. So it'll be one more common objection. Yeah. And it's that yeah. the disciples were just fooled by an imposter. Now, I will say this that it doesn't happen often. I don't hear that one often, but as I was reading the book, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I know I'm not the first person to think that, think this, and I know it's ridiculous and I don't believe this, but what if Jesus had a twin? What if this is like that, that movie where I forget what it was. It was, or there was like this magician that had this yes. impossible oh, trick great, or whatever. That was a great movie, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can't remember what it is, mm -hmm. but it's like, yeah. yeah, the entire time he, he had a twin brother. There was a body double. Like that's what happened the entire time. That's how they could pull off this trick. What if in my most imaginative state that Jesus was part of a twin and they just showed different Jesuses here and there and one mm -hmm. of them threw the short straw, had to get crucified and died and the yeah. other one got to live. But like, walk me through this idea that the disciples, uh, they were just mistaken. They were fooled. Well, this is, you know, Islam largely um, offers a kind of a version of that because they'll say whoever died on the cross was not Jesus. Okay. So yeah, kind of the swoon theory as well. Sure, there's, a, there's a lot of different theories. And what's interesting about those number of theories. So I list them all in the book. There's like six theories that atheists might suggest are possible explanations for the sightings of a risen Christ for, you know, they'll, they'll accept certain base baseline ideas. Okay. The, the guy named Jesus lived. Okay. Even if that was true, it doesn't make Christianity true. A guy like Jesus lived and he died on a cross. That doesn't make Christianity true. And afterwards people said they saw him alive. That does not make Christianity true because they may have been mistaken. He may not have actually died on the cross. They may have imagined this and hallucinated. It may be an imposter fooled them. Maybe, you know, there's a number of six different ways that decide that the, uh, the, the skeptics will typically try to, now, by the way, when you see that, when you see there are six different ways, that should be a tip because they all know that they don't work because mm -hmm. the guy who holds explanation number five, he's rejecting one, two, three, four, and six. And the guy who holds three is rejecting one, two, four, five, and six. 
They, they, in other words, these guys don't even agree with each other because they all recognize the weaknesses in the other five explanations, which I also recognize. There is a weakness in the Christian explanation, explanation seven. The weakness is that it requires a resurrection, but that's the whole thing we're trying to test to begin with. You cannot begin mm-hmm. by casting that out. It's not possible. What if it just is the best explanation from evidence? What are you going to do then? So the imposter thing is interesting to me. Because if you've ever worked imposters, con artists, it would have to be a con. And con artists are called con artists because they gain the confidence of the people they're conning. So you have to have two things in order to con people. One, you have to have their trust, their confidence. Two, you have to know more about the deal you're trying to con than the person you're conning. So like a guy like a Ponzi scheme that you have to know more about business than the guy you're trying to scheme. Because if he knows more about this, he's going to spot the lie. You have to have his trust. That means whoever's doing this has to be so intimately involved with the disciples that he knows everything that Jesus told them. So he and he has to be trusted. He has to be and has to have a lot of information. And that's why I think this idea of a twin seems to be the most effective. But here's the problem. The problem is the miracle sightings, because it appears that Jesus did a bunch of miracles. And if it's one of the twins who had the ability to do the miracles, then then after the resurrection. Jesus did a bunch of miracles, and he even ascended into heaven miraculously. He appeared miraculously. Look, there's the problem. Um, It's the miracle stuff, is that this appears to be something other than a human who can do things that other humans can't do, (laughs) okay? Hmm. And if you think there's a twin involved here, I don't think you've solved the problem. I think you've just expanded the problem. So most times people will offer that the imposter is just somebody who wants to con the disciples. But the problem with that, of course, are all the miracles that that the Jesus worked after the resurrection. This guy has to be a really good magician in order to do this. I just don't think it's reasonable because number one, who would it be who would know enough about what Jesus said to the disciples to be able to play that afterwards? Because you remember there were times when the disciples after the resurrection and Jesus has got a glorified resurrection body, they're like, they're only certain it's Jesus when they hear the conversations. When he says yeah. something that they go, oh my gosh, that's you. you know. So I think in the end, that to me is just not a reasonable explanation. And that's why it's not a popular one. The, probably the more popular ones are swoon theory. He didn't really die on the cross or they're just lying. It's a conspiracy. Those are more popular theories, I think, because they recognize the, the deficiencies of the imposter theory. Well, there's also just the obvious thing. If you've ever been around twins or identical twins or whatever, like they, they don't have the same personality. They have the same parents. They have the same eye color. They have the same hair texture, but they don't have the same personalities. They, they have different tastes in music. They have different, you know, interests in sports, uh, athletic ability, the, the whole nine yards. And so it does kind of tend to fall away pretty quickly. Um, we're running a little short on time. So I'm going to kind of narrow down the areas yep. that we're going to hit before we get you out of here. There's one thing that you've brought up that I hear apologists deal with somewhat, but um, it doesn't really come up. It's not another popular one, but it's another one that does cause people some consternation. They will hear things, you know, or they'll, they'll see memes on the internet where it's like, okay, the story of Jesus is just this amalgamation of a bunch of older messianic myths. And they just kind of all put it together in kind of a Jewish context. And then it just took off more than all of these other ones. And so you deal with that in the book, but can you give us a little bit of a, of a primer on, on that and some of the arguments therein. 
Yeah, what I hear a lot of is there's no doubt that that Jesus personifies a lot of the attributes of important Jewish patriarchs, but that is how God works. God often foreshadows that, for example, if you looked at some of the attributes of Moses and 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 uh, Joshua and Jonah and David, and you'll see that some of these attributes, I could pick out parts of their story and describe David, and you'd think I'm describing Jesus. Hmm. And I can describe Moses. You think I'm describing Jesus? Jonah? No, it's Jesus. And so you could you could definitely cherry pick that out. But you could also do that for each other. You know, you could say, well, I could describe David. No, I'm actually describing somebody else over here. It's because God. Number one, we are humans created in the image of God, and we do possess certain commonalities as part of that lineage. But two, God always foreshadows this coming Messiah. So He's part of the Davidic line, and He's going to have attributes that you're going to recognize because He's part of that line. But what I hear more often is that Jesus is a recreation of non-Jewish myths that are right. just collected of rise of dying and rising saviors. Oh, he's Mithras recreated. He's Osiris or Horus just recreated in a new culture. Okay. I talk about that at length in a book called Person of Interest. Okay. But in this book, Cold Case Christianity, it's just that the idea that Jews, when trying to create a mythology, a mythological figure, this also assumes that, that he never really lived, that he's a late legend that was created maybe in the second or third century. That's to me, is that that's the question is how early is the, are the gospels written? And I address that in the book. This is not a late legend. It is an early claim about Jesus. So you can't lie. The best way to lie about Jesus is to wait till everyone who knows what happened in the first century is dead. Then you can say right. anything you want. But its problem is it's written in the first century, and that's going to be harder to do. But more importantly, the idea that that the that some that Jewish people would try to convince other Jews who have been warned their entire history as a nation not to embrace the false gods of the neighboring nations. And so in order to, to convince this group that Jesus is the Messiah, they borrow and cobble together the ancient pagan mythologies to convince the one group that has rejected the ancient pagan mythologies. Mm, tough sell. But more importantly, it turns out that, yes, God, we have natural expectations and the ancient people, right now, if you said, hey, to most pe people don't even know anything about Christianity, do you think that God exists? Most people on planet Earth would say, yeah. It's, believe it or not, the vast majority of people on planet Earth believe in some form of theism. And if you ask you, well, what do you think God is like? You're going to find that we imagine the same characteristics of God. This has been true forever. Like most people think if there's a God, he can probably defeat death. Hmm. He can probably work miracles. Hmm. He's probably got power, like a royal kind of power, like a king. Hmm. Okay. It turns out that the ancient mythologies also used primitive people who are thinking about God and they get some things right, as we do today. Yeah. And then God, Jesus comes, God comes incarnate, and he ends up fulfilling all of the expectation of the ancients in a way that none of those ancient mythologies do, not nearly as robustly. Jesus fulfills them. Why? Because he is the God you've been imagining all this time. And that doesn't surprise me. Why would it surprise you? Didn't surprise Lewis, C.S. Lewis either. He said, yeah, Jesus is the one true myth, not meaning a false story. That, that's not how he's using the word myth. He means a narrative, a story about God. He is the true myth where all of the mythologies are the myths of men. God it comes and Jesus is the mythology of, of God. It's God's story about God, not people's story about God. And that's why there's a difference here. 
Yeah, I think that's very important because, again, you even just touched on something there that I wish we had more time, like just the use of language in modernity. Like when you say the word myth, it's the same thing like, okay, 100 years ago, gay doesn't mean the same as it does now or like right. whatever these different words are that colloquially we just use them differently. That's obviously very important to take into effect when you're looking at certainly ancient documents that are thousands of years old. So the last thing I want you to touch on before we get you out of here is what you talk about in the book towards the end, which is the dangers of becoming and as you call it, abbreviated Christian. So I guess you could go ahead and define what that is for us and then talk to us about why that is such a dangerous way to operate. Well, you would say this even on your show, that there are certain attributes of masculinity that if we simply reject them, we are abbreviating what our role is in culture, what what our role is in our families, what our role is in our marriage. If we decide that we're just Mm going to reject certain attributes that are driven really by our biochemistry, we would be abbreviated in some way. Well, the same thing is true for Christians. I mean, we have been called to give the reason for the hope we have in Jesus. And the entire history, the earliest Christians were defenders of the faith. If you look at the earliest um, church fathers and earliest public Christians who made a, they were basically making a defense against attacks against Christianity. We have to take our responsibility seriously. If you think, well, you know, I think I have a responsibility to evangelism. Well, evangelism in this century is spelled apologetics because that is what we have to do in this culture. And it turns out that we're not actually, we're called to make disciples. And part of that is going to be evangelism. Part of that's going to be, well, why is this true? And so we are called to do this. This is our duty as Christians. We make two professions, two um, claims, two decisions, one for Christ and one to defend what we know is true. And that's what we do as Christians. We're both of those. If you don't do the second one, if you just make a decision for Christ, but never learn how to defend what's true, you are abbreviated. You are, you, you're not quite the Christian you ought to be. Not that we have to earn our Christianity. That's not what I'm saying. But but we've been called from the beginning. It's, it's Peter doesn't say, hey, if you feel like it, or some of you should be ready to defend this, you should hire an apologist occasionally, read an apologetics book. No, he says you need to be able to give the reason for the hope you have in, in Jesus with gentleness and respect. So I think that's what I, I fear, is that we don't do the second thing very well. You know, we can wear the Rams shirt, but we have no idea who's playing on the team. So it's time for us to know who's playing on the team and why this is true before our kids decide it's not true. I absolutely co-sign that. Again, I know that a lot of people, they don't have disputatious natures, so they don't want to prepare themselves for a fight because they want to avoid the fight entirely. But what they don't understand is just like a physical altercation, the fight may come to your doorstep. And at that moment, you don't have time to train anymore. You're left with whatever tools that you have at your disposal. And hopefully it's not you and your wimpy little arms. So the same thing in your, your Christian walk is when someone comes to challenge you, and that challenge may come in the form of your 16 year old daughter or son, and you have nothing with which to inform them uh, as to why you have your faith in the way that you do, that's a dangerous proposition just for just about any Christian. So Jim, as always, when you and I talk, I have 17 more things I wish we could have talked about, but we are out of time. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, Kyle, I'll tell you this, and please invite me back because I love doing this podcast with you. If you want more information on this latest edition of the book, just go to coldcasechristianitybook.com. We don't have to say any more about that. It's all the information is there, but I'm willing to come back anytime, Kyle. Just, Just let me know. Absolutely. That is in the show notes. Guys, Jim, thank you for coming back on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks. I appreciate you. 
There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Jay Warner Wallace. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here's a link that I've got for you today. I've got an Amazon link to Cold Case Christianity, the updated and expanded edition, because there's other links to the older version. This is a link to the newer edition. I've got a link to his previous appearance on this show, episode 275, a link to his website, which is the one he mentioned in the show, coldcasechristianity.com, and also a link to his YouTube channel. You guys should definitely subscribe. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. Also, we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Perpetua, which is off their self titled debut album on face down records the links are in the description i'm your host kyle thompson remember keep pushing back darkness keep forging spiritual mental and physical resilience keep seeking the lion of judah